Hello and welcome to episode 232 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Vienna, Virginia. This is Ben Olson. With me is Nathan Fox in Los Angeles. No, I'm up in Lake Tahoe. My class has ended uh, on Sunday and I have a bit of a break. So I'm here to try to get some skiing in, even though there's no snow. And then uh, I'm headed up to Oregon for golf. So I'm going to be traveling for the next like week or so. Cool. So you're a skier, not a snowboarder. Uh, I'm not much of either, but I grew up <laughs> I grew okay. up skiing and mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I can ski. I can do, you know, any like intermediate stuff. I prefer just basically intermediate groomed, you know. That's me. I don't need to be getting all crazy. Yeah. Okay, cool. You go with fr- uh, friends, same friends for golf or different friends? Yeah, so my uh my buddy from childhood, Wade, uh lives here. And, uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he he's a skier and a snowboarder, and he's also gone on this golf thing with me. But yeah, so I'm up here, and uh, I'm going to meet up with another friend from Napa who's going to be here, and then we're all going to travel <laughs> like nine hours to Oregon together. You're going to go drive play golf. to Oregon? Well, it's either that or there's no good way to get to this place in coastal hmm. Oregon where we go. It's hmm. like a four hour drive south of Portland or south west of portland so i don't know you <laughs> you can try flying into some of the smaller airports but then flights get canceled a lot because of weather and hmm. it's sometimes it's easier to just throw everything in the car and control your own destiny yeah well i used to drive everywhere but uh i don't know something like four years ago five years ago something like snapped inside of me i'm like if it's longer than that yeah, i mean like two hours i start questioning <laughs> and if it's longer than six it's a, like pretty much a no-go it's yeah it's like a, a no-brainer fly. when i'm going from you know la to the bay area it's a no-brainer to jump on the southwest flight from burbank to oakland and you're just there it's like magic but mm-hmm. when you're getting from going from a hard place to a hard place <laughs> south lake tahoe i mean it's like an hour to the reno airport yeah you know, and then you're still only in the Reno airport, which doesn't have direct flights to lots of places. And so <laughs> I don't know. It's just, uh, there's no good way. Cool, man. Well, have fun. Thanks. So I saw a parasite last night and you said you loved it. I did. Yeah. It was, um, I saw eight of the nine best picture nominees. Only one I didn't see is Ford versus Ferrari, but I hear that's good. Wait, wait, here's a test for you. Can you list them all off? No, I don't think I can. Well, I could try the Irishman, um, the Irishman guy. Oh, okay. Little Women, Marriage Story, Joker, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite, Ford versus Ferrari. I'm at seven. Oh, shit, I don't know. And they they were all good, except mm-hmm. for the. Well, I didn't Joker, see Ford maybe. versus Ferrari. Joker, yeah. I was a little bored. Marriage yeah. Story but. was good. I don't know. It just seems like drama. <laughs> Dramas can be good. good. Ben. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have a wide range of movies that I like. That's a one good thing about being me is that I I just I'm like never disappointed really hardly by the movies. The mm. only thing that would really disappoint me is like just the you know, this the typical like blockbuster popcorn movie kinds of things. Like those are sure. just a take them or leave them. But no, all other movies normally if I see something that's been nominated for tons of awards, yeah, I'll, I'll end up liking it. That's good to know. I was surprised by that movie last night, but uh, it was entertaining for that reason. Um, 
just also lots of twists and turns. But oh, if anybody hasn't seen Parasite, you have to see Parasite. It's fantastic. It's like it's it's almost like two different movies, right? I mean, the first half of it is like a comedy, <laughs> and then it turns yeah. into something really bizarre. But well, that <laughs> comedy is delightful, isn't it? The first, yeah. uh, the first oh, bit yeah. of it, yeah, that was good. Yeah, no, I I, I like the ever changingness of it. So keeps you engaged. Uh, okay, today on the show we have a question about index calculation. That's something that law schools do when they look at your application. We have demon questions. We have hybrid games advice. We are going to talk about episode starting point. Hmm. Um, questions from the Facebook group, and we have another question: Is this cycle? Countercycle. <laughs> eh? I don't know what that means, but we'll find out. And we have something from the newest US a n- a UC from a new- Hastings <laughs> yeah. student. Okay. Yeah. Good. I'm sure that will be fun. This is going to come out on Monday, February 17th. Uh, the February LSAT is just around the corner. Good luck to you, who those of you who are taking it. The March 30th LSAT <laughs> is the March LSAT. And the registration deadline for that has passed. So you're now looking at the April and June LSATs. The April registration deadline is March 10th. Hmm. Yep, that's about, again, 45 days or so before the April LSAT, which is going to be on April 25th. Uh, da, da, da. If you have any questions, email the show at help at thinkinglsat.com. Send us your selfies if you're so inclined, and we'll include them in the social media posts. And... Yeah. Do you have any comments on the agenda today? Not really. I mean, as far as registration deadlines, my class in LA that just ended was asking me, a bunch of them are still relatively novices and they're asking if they should register for the April LSAT. And um, the one thing I had to tell most of them is just, you don't have to decide right now. I mean, you've got until the 10th of March to make that decision and if you've been, you know, they just finished a class, right? So they have the demon, they have books, they have, they've had the benefit of a, a full class worth of instruction. They're equipped for self-study now, but I can't predict whether they'll be ready or not to take the April LSAT. It depends on how hard they work. Yeah, a lot can happen between now, the middle of February, and kind of mid-March. I mean, a lot can happen in a month. And I do feel myself saying that all the time. I'm like, okay, uh, when's the registration deadline for April? And, you know, a lot of times they don't know and we look it up. It's like, oh, okay, it's March 10th. Like, you don't need to make a decision until (laughs) that day or a couple days before. By then, you'll know a lot more. You'll know so much more about how you're doing, how you feel about the test. But people kind of want... I don't know, certainty now, right? Yeah, but I hate to break it to you. <laughs> you know, like it's just there's going to be lots of aspects of LSAT prep and the whole law school application process where you don't get to have certainty. It's just you just don't. Like um people right now who are waiting on um applications, mm-hmm. you don't you don't get to have certainty. You don't get to decide. <laughs> like some of the schools are going to admit you, some of the schools are going to admit you with a good offer, some of the schools are going to waitlist you. And school doesn't start until September 1st. So as much as it's a pain in the ass to be waiting, and as much as you would like to have certainty, 
it's all just part of the negotiation and it's going to take a while. Yeah, and it, if you can embrace that uncertainty, actually, I think you'll find life to be much more enjoyable because that's just true for a lot of things. Yeah, all the waiting is going to suck. It's always going to suck, like in, unless you just yeah sort of get over it. You're going to have to wait for grades in law school. You're going to have to wait for your bar results. Um, I don't know. It's not that you shouldn't pursue goals and you know give up on things. It's just that. Uh, you know, there's there's value in just saying, okay, this is what I'm going for. I'm going to work toward that. I may not know when I'm going to take the test. I may not know what schools I'm going to get into. I don't know what my LSAC calculated GPA is going to turn out to be exactly. But just move forward and worry about that on another day <laughs> when that <Yeah>. happens. <laughs> yeah. There's enough to do today, so... Just put your head down and, you know, people stress about that too. They're like, oh, I wasn't able to drill yesterday. I had to, I still hadn't finished reviewing the test from Saturday. And I was like, did you learn something? Did did you, while you were reviewing the test from Saturday, did you have any insights? Do you understand the test better now? Yeah, yeah, I took away a few things, but I wasn't able to drill. It's like, that's okay. I don't care. I don't care about that at all. All I care about is, are you learning something about the test every day? And ideally from either practice problems you've done or you're doing that day. Like you're moving forward. Yeah. I get emails or phone calls. I got a phone call not too long ago with someone saying like, hey, Nathan, I know we have class this weekend, but um, I just haven't really had time to do much work between last class and now. And so Mm. I'm wondering if it's even worth it for me to come to class. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah. I'm just like, well, I hope it's worth it to come to class. I mean, we're going to do a lot of work. We're going to talk a lot about the LSAT. We're going to cover a lot of LSAT questions. You're going to have the opportunity to ask anything you want for two straight days. It's not about how much you have or haven't done. It's you know, it's more about like, what are you doing right now? Yep. And <laughs> you've had this weekend blocked up on your calendar for LSAT prep, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. planned on the class, right? So I don't know if people are like wanting me to tell them, oh, yeah, no, you're probably right. Yeah, you should probably skip it. You're not ready. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just, uh, I don't know. It's a little bit about just kind of being present, right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's like in the moment, like, okay, what are we doing? What are we doing right now? Today? Like, let's, we'll deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. But what are we doing today to just make, you know, move it one step forward? Yeah. But lots of it, tons of it's waiting. I was talking to Matt Dumont about the, he's got all his offers now, right? Or like he's Mm. still getting offers, Mm. but he has lots of offers. And he's just, he, you can tell he's got a good like perspective on the whole thing because he's planning on just waiting as long as it takes uh, Mm. before he makes any decisions, which he should, right? I mean, he should hold out for the best decision, the best offer he can possibly get. Yeah. Um, We'll talk about this more when we get to this question about the counter cycle thing. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. People are going to have to be patient. I don't, there's so much that can happen in the next month. Uh, you, you don't know. You're not, you don't know whether you'll be ready or not. I mean, if you're ready now, then yeah, go ahead and register. But if yeah. you've got some, if you, if you're 10 points away or 15 points away or more, maybe you'll make it, maybe you won't, but just, you know, keep shooting hard for, keep the April 25th date of the test on your calendar and also keep the March 10th deadline on your calendar. 
Yep. Work hard every day between now and then and see where you're at. There you go. And then make a decision. And this is this is a perfect opportunity for everyone because you should be applying in the next cycle. So if you're not ready for April, then shoot for June. If you're not ready for June, fine. I mean, ideally you've been doing work and should be ready by then, but if you're not, that's not a big deal. Take it in July. Even take it in August. Like you're still one of those people who could apply early after taking it two or three times and getting your best score. Yeah, and people are like, but isn't the August test too late? Because And it's like, okay, you're just, now you're way letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. We let's, let's talk about what we do today to get ready for the LSAT whenever it comes. Might be tomorrow, might be the next, you know, it might be April, might be, June, but like, let's, let's just keep grinding every day toward that registration deadline and then make a decision. It's yeah. fine. I don't know. You might only have to take it once. If you take it, if you, let's say you get ready and you take it on April 25th and you kill it. Wow. You're done. But Boom. then you, that might not be the case either. And you might end up taking it a second or third or fourth time. And I don't know. We just got to dig it kind of one day at a time. Yeah. Cool. So this first question is about the index calculation. Oh, wait, no, this is what you brought up because you're students in LA. Don't forget to tell people that they can email the show. Uh, help at thinkinglsat.com. Um, we we really do love hearing your questions. Um, our producer, Annalisa, will receive those emails and uh, make a agenda for the next show. So if there's anything that, that you think we're missing... Um, any questions or just something funny that came up, uh, that's help at thinkinglset.com. Sorry, Ben. Thanks. Oh, no worries. I did mention that, by the way. Did oh, you, you did? Oh, yeah. I was spacing out. Sorry. That's <laughs> all right. So your students in LA wanted to hear about how law schools do their index calculations. Um, we talked about that a couple years ago, but you know, I'm sure a lot of people have not gotten back to that episode uh, or episodes. What do you want to say about this? Well, is there a, I, I mean, maybe we should have like done some show prep, unlike our normal um, zero preparation for the show. But where do people, how do people find those? A couple of years ago, we had like a spreadsheet of all of the index calculations. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think we can dig those up? <laughs> I'm trying. Well, I'll talk a little bit briefly about just how the how the index thing works. Okay. Um, law schools love to tell you that you're not just the numbers to them. You're more than just the numbers, Ben, when you're an applicant yeah. to law school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They look at the applications holistically, blah, 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 right? Oh, yeah. That's good to hear, actually. Um, they they never be judged as a person rather than right, a Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they're judging you as a person. Not, you know, it's not just the numbers. Well, the truth is, LSAT and GPA is too that's too many numbers for them. They can't handle two numbers per person. So they actually turn every applicant into just one number. <laughs> and they do this via something called the index calculation or index formula. These are public and I think we can dig them up. Tell you what. I just I just found them. Oh, you found them. Okay. So where yep. did you find them? So if you go to thinkinglsat.com, our lovely website, we have a search box in the top right corner. I searched for index. It popped up two episodes, episode 87 and 99. Um, 87 was the first time that we talked about it, and that's where we have a, a spreadsheet 
um, from one of our listeners showing how he went through and calculated the index number for the schools that he was applying to. Um, I imagine people can unpack more there. Okay, we'll link to those in the show notes. Anybody who wants to help us, email uh, for like, because they change the formulas from year to year. They do have to publish them weirdly. I don't know what, I guess this is an ABA requirement that they have to publish their formula. But mm. the basically the way it works is they take your LSAT times some number mm-hmm. and they add it to your GPA times some number. Yeah. And then they usually add another number. <laughs> They have three constants in the equation, but what they're doing is they're they're weighting your LSAT score versus your GPA. If you think about it for a second, you can't just add the LSAT to the GPA. That would make no sense, right? You're adding a 165 to a 3.5. Now you're a 168.5. That doesn't make any sense, right? That's underweighting the GPA. Yeah. So they basically have to bump up. They have to multiply the GPA. And and I don't know why they add the constant for the LSAT as well and the third constant at the end. <laughs> you know, it's probably I could imagine the people in the law schools that like don't really understand math and they're like tweaking this formula every year without <laughs> really knowing at all what they're doing. But it doesn't it seems to me, Ben, that just take the LSAT and add it to GPA times a multiplier. Sure. Why wouldn't well, you that get, work? You just get yeah, get G, convert GPA <laughs> to like from the one to four scale to a, a one twenty to one eighty scale, and then you could add them. Although, but they are doing two things, right? They're not only multiplying. They're like you said, they're giving weight. And I, when I remember us having that discussion before, and we looked at the formulas, the top, yeah, twenty. You know, basically, it doesn't really matter. There's not a hard cutoff here, but basically, the the top, the higher programs. Like think Harvard, Yale, even Georgetown, and so forth. They tended to give a little bit more weight to the GPA than to the LSAT, whereas schools below that, it was the reverse, and they yes. gave more weight to the LSAT than the GPA. And Berkeley, I just remember Berkeley because it yes. gave the most weight to GPA than any other school, even though it's not the the highest school, obviously. Yeah. But and then anyways. you get a school like UCLA, which is just outside the top fourteen, but they definitely prefer LSAT. They weight LSAT a lot more than yeah. they weight GPA. Yeah. It, well, I don't know if it's a lot more. It's I, I think we're we're talking about like forty five percent relative you know. to the other schools. Relative to the other school, yeah. sure, there might be a 10% difference, right? But we're not talking huge differences here. They, like one, a lot of the lower tier schools are giving 40, 45% of their you know, weight to the GPA and 55 to the LSAT. Now, that's just comparing the two. <laughs> I'm sure there's 1% dedicated to other factors, such as your personality, work history, <laughs> letters of rec, and so on. If somebody knows where all of these new formulas are and they want to email the show, uh, we are help at thinkinglset.com and we would love to disseminate that information. It's it's overly complicated and I'm not sure that it's the most productive use of your time. And well, let me take that back. I am sure that it is not the most productive use of your time. I agree. (laughs) To be geeking out about this stuff. Well, you can just the main take like again. It's something you can't control. Are you going to apply to the school or not? Like, you can't control their index number. So, just for your, I don't know, so you can sleep better at night. Keep in mind, top schools tend to value GPA a little bit more, and lower schools tend to value LSAT a little bit more. What are you going to do about it? I don't know. <laughs> well, the only thing you can really control is get a better LSAT score, right? Yeah, which was always true, right? Yeah. So it's like. 
I don't right. know. Yeah. So you can look it up if you really want to geek out about how all they do all these index calculations. You can. That's fine. But um, it's really just kind of stats debating instead of, you know, like studying for the LSAT, like yeah. learning one more. <laughs> we, we haven't used that word in a long time. Figure out one more question and uh, improve your LSAT score because no matter what school you're applying to, they would prefer that you have one more LSAT point. Yeah, even for the top programs that are weighing GPA more, they're still weighing your LSAT score forty five percent of your, right. their consideration. Like, and that's the one thing you have control over. And over the next month, you could bump it from a one sixty five to maybe a one seventy, depending on your work uh, ethic and everything else, and your smarts. Um, and by smarts, I mean how you go about working. But GPA is that going to change? Even if you're still in school, how much is it going to change? Not that much. Yeah, and if you I mean if you're a junior or something, and you have like significant number of classes left, then uh, fine. I mean, you need to get good grades. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody listening to this, if you think grades aren't part of it, you're totally wrong. Lawyers love to work really hard. Law schools love hard workers. You know, getting really good grades shows them that you're the right type of person, the right type of worker bee. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you should get the best grades you can. You should also get the best LSAT score you can. <laughs> and that's you're going to learn that when you start looking at these index formulas. <laughs> I mean, not really. We, we already told you that. You could also just go to one of these um, LSAT GPA calculators, right? That Because those calculators probably, well, they either use the actual admissions data or they use the index formulas. Um, they probably. Oh, I think the I think the LSAC one uses the data that they're given by the schools. Yeah, they right. Just say, hey, look, this this is the numbers. We're not taking into account anything else. We're just saying, if you had this, yeah, GPA here's who LSAC you admitted. Score, <laughs> here's yeah, the truth thanks. about who you admitted. That the other thing is, if you look at a single 509 report, every single school has a very narrow range of LSAT and a very narrow range of GPA. Mm-hmm. So it, it just no matter what the school. They are leaning very heavily on both LSAT and GPA. If they weren't, they would have a much wider range. <laughs> they have very yeah. narrow ranges, which means that they are clearly using those two things as their primary determinants. Yeah. All right. Is that enough for the law school That's index stuff? Okay. Good. Yeah. All right. By the um, way, that guy who shared his uh, stats on that episode uh, eighty-seven—that was the Nyquil guy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <From> episode sixty-six. <laughs> oh yeah. He's probably graduated from law school by now. Man, time flies. Time flies. Don't drink NyQuil. Don't. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all you need to know. All Just right. Avoid it. Demon questions. This one says, hey, Ben and Nathan. Julian here with a demon update and two questions. First, I love the demon. That's uh, lsatdemon.com for those of you who don't know. I've been studying since October, taken about 42 practice tests, and I've seen a huge improvement in my score, diagnostic 155 to highest score of 172 and current average of 167. Current average? I think who knows how many tests. That must be like the last taken. five or the last 10 yeah, or something. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. The last Moving few. average of the last. Yeah. Okay. Averaging mm-hmm. around. Okay. Got it. I'm hoping to consistently hit 170 before my March LSAT. All right. Good job, Julian. But I lo- what I love about Julian is that he put in a lot of work, 42 practice tests. Mm-hmm. 
I got an email over the weekend from someone saying, hey, I've been studying since early January and I've improved my score seven points, but I just, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> I've done three practice tests and I'm trying to get to 170 and I started at a 152 and now I'm at a 156 or seven and I just, I'm stuck, SOS. And I, <laughs> I'm just like, well, three practice tests. Okay, that's a start. Yeah. I mean, it depends on how many time sections that person's doing. They might be doing a lot of those. and But if they're not, and it doesn't sound like they are, that's a problem. <laughs> I do worry sometimes people hear this 42 and they're like, oh, and they just go start taking tests, you know, and they're like, oh, I took three this week. Look at, and that's not the only number. You got to review these tests and if you're doing too many. But notice this person says, I've been studying since October. So... It's a good amount of time. And if you actually study since October, yeah. You know, like let's say you're on a pace of one test or two tests per week, and you can yeah. break it up section by section, right? If you did one mm-hmm. section a day since October, mm-hmm. I don't it's know. It's about two tests a week. Yeah, it's about two tests a week. And since October, November, December, January, yeah, two tests a week for 16, 20 weeks. Yeah, now you start talking about 42 practice tests. Yeah. And I don't know, I'm just amazed that people, I guess there's relativity, and I also think people just don't understand how hardworking their opponents are. Sure. You know, why am I, why have I only improved? (laughs) And it's funny too, because she had probably improved her LSAT score by like 15 or 20 percentile. Yeah, that's, I mean, seven points is decent. Yeah, seven points moves you past like a whole swath of applicants into a whole new realm of law schools and scholarship possibilities. But she still has only scratched the surface of how much prep she could possibly do. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, sometimes if you're trying to go f- make a life changing amount of improvement on the LSAT, um, it might take more than a month. You know, it, it, three months, six, th- I, I've, these days I'm saying three to six months is not out of the, I mean, that's like normal, right? Yeah. And frequently people study for a year or more. You can. You can continue learning even if you study for like six months or a year. You can still be learning new stuff about the test. I agree. Questions from Julian. I've been taking the tests chronologically from 89 down. I'm currently in the 40s and I noticed there are no comparative passages in the RC sections. Was comparison only recently introduced? And do you find that it tests any different skills from the regular reading comp? (laughs) Well, Julian, you found where it was introduced. June 2007. Which is tests, a test that came between tests 51 and 52. Yeah. So if you're in the 40s, you passed it right when you hit 51. Yeah. There was no comparative reading before that. It was only one out of the four. I mean, it is only one out of the four reading comprehension comprehension passages. Yeah. I don't spend very much time really like focusing on the differences. It's still about whether you just read it and understand it. Do you think it tests something significantly different from the regular reading comp? I don't think it's significantly different. I do think that, you know, 
it, all the questions in general in a comparison passage seem to be about the differences somehow, or, you know, oh, this passage says it, the other passage doesn't, or the author of this person thinks what of this, but not the second author or something like that. So I feel like it's kind of like disagree questions or agree questions on steroids, right? You have to like recognize the differences. And so it is nice to get that experience. Um, I wouldn't encourage someone to never see one. <laughs> and you can't not the test. if you, yeah. if you, as long as you just do tests that are, you know, in the fifties and beyond, then yeah, you will be seeing a comparative reading passage on every test. Mm-hmm. I, I used to say that I think it's a slightly more interesting because you get two speakers instead of one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, do you know the, the one that's about um, software patents? Passage A is about like, hey, here's the problem with patents that are overly broad and here's what software companies have had to do. They end up having to, because every patent infringes on, or every invention <laughs> in software basically impinges theoretically on a dozen different patents. And so what uh, companies do is they end up getting a portfolio of patents just as a defensive strategy. Basically, if you Mm -hmm. sue us, we're going to countersue you. Because if we're infringing your patents, then surely you're infringing one of our patents. Yeah. And so it's sort of like nuclear stockpiling at that point. It's just like a deterrent, right? Yeah. And that's passage A is basically about that. And then passage B, it shifts into a different speaker. That's what I thought was maybe more interesting about the comparative reading is that you get two speakers instead of one. So sure. at the beginning of passage B, it's like, oh, whole new person. Who is this? And in the software one, it ends up being like a CEO of a software company saying, hey, um, we basically believe in open source, blah, blah, blah. But... Mm-hmm. we're going to actually have to pursue this same strategy ourselves of getting a defensive portfolio because we have Otherwise to live in get... the world as it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I just, I find it to be kind of maybe refreshing because you get in that, in that case you get like a 30 line sort of theoretical passage followed by a very specific 30 line. Um, you know, here's what we're going to do in our company. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Hmm. Anyhow, next question from Julian. Sure. Says this is more subjective, but are the LG sections in the 40s easier? As I'm going through the 40s, I'm finding the games to be oddly straightforward. I'm finishing each LG section with eight minutes left and getting them all right. I can't tell if I'm just getting better or if it's something about this batch of tests. I just don't want to get used to easier games as I'm prepping for my first real test. Thanks so much. Love the podcast. Praise the demon, Julian. Uh, I think that both things have happened to Julian here. I think the 40s are a little more straightforward. There's only a couple tests in there or games in there where I feel like, hmm, I haven't seen this before. They seem to kind of repeat themselves in the 40s. But don't worry. If you keep going down, uh, the tests in the 30s and 20s and just really below that have some more unusual games or games that don't follow the standard pattern as consistently. So yeah, he's going to get better. Yeah. Very soon. The tests in the thirties, you're going to find Julian are dramatically harder than the ones you're doing in the forties. 
Yeah. And earlier than the 30s, yeah, there's lots of challenging stuff in there. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, though, that the tests in the 80s are much more like the 40s than they are like the 20s or 30s. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, they're, they, the te- they seem to have gotten easier. <laughs> yeah. So, Julian, you for sure have gotten better. I mean, you can get so much better at the logic games. That's one of the most common things that people say to me is like, but Nathan, aren't these games just easy? It'll be like near the end of class. But Nathan, these games are just easier though, right? And I look at them and I'm like, no, (laughs) no, they're not. But you're way better at the games now. Yeah. And so then, yeah, I mean, hey, Julian has done the work where he deserves to be a lot better at the games now. Yeah. I mean, he's done almost, he's done more than half now. Yeah. He's in the forties. He's done about half of the, of all the games that are available. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think they're getting easier now, Julian, just keep going, do all the rest of them. I mean, you are about to go through a bunch of hard ones in the thirties and twenties, but if you can handle those, you can definitely handle the tests on the, in the eighties or the, the new modern ones are just not nearly as hard as the stuff in the twenties and thirties. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for writing in. Next one, hybrid games advice. Hey guys, I wanted to I want to know what advice you have for hybrid or weird games. Whoa, hold up. I wouldn't say that hybrid games are weird. To me, they're just combining ordering and grouping for the vast majority of yep. time. And they're actually most games in the test are some form of hybrid. Yep. Uh, okay. Anyways, I'm referring to games like the Flower and Light Switches game. Um, the Light Switches game is just uh, an in-out game, which is just a grouping game. And I, I don't know. Maybe the Flower game is an in-out game too. I think I know what he's talking about. Or oh, sorry, she Kendra. Anyways, I look at your demon lesson for those games, and the videos help me a bit. I also looked at your episode index and listened to episode 153. But I'm wondering if you have any general advice for these games. I am also curious if games are getting harder with these newer tests. Hmm, we just talked about that. That's interesting. Thank you both for your help, Kendra. Yeah, so I think, okay, I don't think you should be focusing on hybrid or, quote, weird games. I, I would don't think just, so either. Just drill in the demon and let it give you games that are at your skill level, which might be easier at this point, but that's okay. Just slow it down, really get comfortable with the games that it gives you and then go to the next game. <laughs> and try to understand these games. Like light switches isn't that crazy. Just try to understand like okay, so things can be on or off. I mean she might be referring to there's a couple light switches games. There's one that she has to be thinking about the one with the circuit load of the panel. Well, she could be, but there is one that like is was it older or newer? Now I can't remember. I'm doing all these old games in classes <laughs> and they feel like the new ones. So sometimes I get mixed up. But anyways, yeah, whatever it is. I mean, just just slow it down. <laughs> just do more practice and you'll realize that over half of the games are hybrid games. I don't ever say that word. I don't that's not a thing I say in class. Mm. I don't talk about game types at all in class. Mm-hmm. I I don't break it down by type. I don't teach by type. I just, I do it. I do section by section. Let's just attack. Let's just tackle these games. 
Yeah. The one thing that every game has in common is they give you 100% of the information that you need to solve every question perfectly. Sure. They have that in common. So there's not hybrid and they're not weird. They have given you all the rules. They've given you all the information you need. Very frequently, if it looks really strange, if it looks hybrid and weird, it's actually easier than a very straightforward looking sequencing game or grouping game. Mm-hmm. They can ask you really hard questions, even if it's a familiar setup. And if it's an unfamiliar setup, they can ask you really easy questions. And that happens a lot on these games yeah. that look freaky. It could be that they're just like the answers are just right there in front of you. Once you get working inside the system, you'll figure it out. Yeah. Lawyers, I, <laughs> lawyers are meant to be generalists. Law schools prepare lawyers to be generalists, right? Their fantasy of a lawyer is that you're supposed to be able to come into any legal situation and just figure out what the interests of the parties are and what the rights are of the parties and what claims the parties might have in any unfamiliar system of law, right? You're supposed to be able to graduate from law school and then immediately go do like a maritime matter yeah. if your client asks you about it. Mm-hmm. Even though you never studied maritime law, right? Well, each of these logic games is like a different, just a different system. It's just a, you have to like, here's all the rules and they give it to you. They give you all of the relevant <laughs> controlling law is just right there on the page. And in fact, it's short, right? It's just yeah. like, hey, here's a little tiny paragraph, like three sentences. And then here's all the rules that control the system. You, you need to be able to dig in there with no prep and just figure out what they're saying and then figure out what rules are controlling and then think about the ways that the rules connect to each other. Yeah. The best way you get, you know, the, it's not advice. It's just do all of the games. Do all of them. And review. It seems like she's sort of cherry picking a little bit, you know? Yeah. But it's like, and I think sometimes it's funny because students are like, oh, I've got the grouping games down and I've got the sequencing games down. Which I don't think that's really even true. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then they like go looking for maybe someone gave them a list of like, hey, here's 10 quirky hybrid games. And then they like go work on those for a little while because they think they're going to solve the puzzle of hybrid games. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I would rather you just get as much coverage of as many games as you possibly can and then watch videos. Because if you watch, I mean, now, Ben, the, the demon has multiple videos for every game basically. Yeah. Right. And it'll be like, I was looking at it today or not today. Yesterday I was looking at it. There will be like, there could be like seven videos for the same game mm-hmm. and you'll see Ben do it a whole bunch of different ways and me do it a couple different ways. Yeah. Well, not just watch one of those looking for a solution, but if you watch a bunch of them, I think you'll realize that there is no, one solution to any of these games. And that's my whole point is that you just need to improvise a solution. Yeah. And a lot of times actually the solution to a weird game or a game that threw you off because you didn't know what to do and it slowed you down is to get better at the other games in the section. Like it's like, well, yeah, but you took 12 minutes on a simple ordering game. Why? Like if you had done that in five minutes or six minutes, (laughs) then you could have had that extra time to chill out and think about this game that took that's you too long. That's a good long. point. Yeah, that's a good point. They'll, people think that they've got it because mm-hmm. they were able to work their way through it and get them all right. 
but yeah. it's like, well, yeah, but if someone better at the games, I mean, they would have done that game in five minutes mm-hmm. and then save all that time to apply to whatever harder, weirder games you think are on the section. Yeah. Yeah. People just need to do more work generally. <laughs> I hand out my, um, thanks for tuning in. Work I'm, <laughs> yeah, he's a break it to you, but I mean, I, I hand out my logic games playbook in my classes Mm-hmm. And on the first day of class, I'm like, I'm giving you this book because I want you to get a lot of broad experience in the games. And this book has 30 games in it. That's only one tenth of all the games that exist. Not even one tenth of all the games that exist. And it has each of those in there 30 times. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, not 30 times. It has each of those in there three times. And the point is, I want you to do each of the games multiple times. Because I want you to build up a, <laughs> just you know, it's almost like shooting free throws or something. Mm-hmm. Like I want you to build up the, the, the muscle memory here. I want you to do. I want you to practice this. I want you to see all of these games, and I'll hand it out. I mean, we mail them that book way before the class even starts. Yeah, and we send them the instructions to do every game in the you know every page of the book, every page of the book, <laughs> and then I say it again in class, every page of the book, and then we get to the end of class. And about half of the kids will just, you know, they've been, you know, I, oh yeah, I've been working on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the truth is they've done, you know, group one and a half or something. Yeah. And they yeah. just, they're just not putting in the, they're just not doing the reps. Like you're not, you're not going to magically get better by us, like giving you tricks, tips and tricks and that kind of stuff. You're, you're the way you're going to get better is by really putting in the work. Well, the funny thing, we don't like that phrase, but the reality is is that the explanations themselves are filled with whatever you want to call them, tips and tricks. I I don't really care, actually, but like concrete, specific advice. Sometimes I feel like people think that that specific advice is not useful because it only helps with that game. It's like, no, it's just like trying to understand what that rule said, and here's a way to represent it. And I want you to do this a bunch of times because eventually you'll step back and say, okay, I'm getting the general like theme here. I'm starting to get my mind wrapped around all these symbols and what seemed like a unique one-off thing may have been unique and one-off in some ways, but in other ways it's following a similar broader pattern that we're doing with the games. We're reading rules, we're trying to understand them, and we're trying to represent them in a way that makes sense and doesn't necessarily conflict with other sort of symbols we've come up with to represent similar but different rules. I don't know. So just dig into, do the game, dig into the explanations and take what we do seriously every step of the way. People think that we're going to give them a a recipe, like a magic formula that you just, oh, all you got to do is follow these steps. Yeah. When you I, see it's an ordering game, make sure to draw do these, these things. And yeah. Then, yeah. That's and not, then you have like a checklist and it actually becomes kind of overwhelming. That's not how I see it at all. I mean, I could do the same game in two different ways and I could do them in bizarrely different ways to where if you didn't look carefully, you would think I was doing two different games. Like I can do, if I do a game, you know, like with the birds in the forest game or the friends in the photograph game, mm-hmm. if I do yeah. that with just conditional logic with just mm-hmm. if then statements and linking sure. to the, together and the contrapositive and all that shit, 
Yeah. That's one approach to the game. Totally works. If I do that same game with worlds, it'll look like the two diagrams won't look even remotely similar. Mm-hmm. No, but no. both of those, both of those ways completely solve the game. And so my point isn't or our point, I think isn't that you need to do exactly what we say. Our point is you need to fucking do something, just do something. And, and I think that comes from just a lot of practice. I look over people's shoulders in classes sometimes. And I mean, I can tell who does well and who doesn't do well solely based on the volume of stuff they've written on their page. If they've, if they've written a lot of stuff, if they've like tried a solution, they almost always do well. If they're looking at the blank page, they almost always do poorly. So it's like, what I want you to do is improvise a solution. Just read the rules, look at the connections between the rules Think about the system. Use common sense. If you were working in this office and you were supposed to determine, you know, which switches were on and which switches are off, what would you do? Surely you wouldn't just sit there blankly. I mean, I hope. Sadly, I think some people do. <laughs> right? Like a lot of people, they, they, their, their boss gives them an assignment and they turn around and say, how do I do this? And it's like, well, I can walk you through it. That's one tier of job. Or you can figure it out. That's a higher tier of job. <laughs> and pay tends to be associated with what tier you're in. Are you solving problems or are you waiting for someone to tell you how to solve problems? Well, if you think you're going to be a lawyer without being the type of person who figures things out, I, don't, I just don't think that that's a thing. You need to be a problem solver. You need to be able to come in, see a complicated system, and find a solution. That's like how you win cases, right? You're trying to make a claim for your client. You're trying to get your client like status, immigration status or whatever. You're going to have to come in, look at a very complicated system, and figure out a way that they can get their case through. I just I don't think that I don't think any of that stuff is that much is that different from what the logic games are are asking you to do. They're just asking you to do it in a sort of a da- abstract like different um controlled environment. Yeah. Right. It's like a it's almost like a toy game. Like it's just a hey, what if we gave you this system? Could you solve this system? Could you figure out what the possible outcomes are in this system? And I, I think there are analogy. I mean, I think that the L, the logic games were on the LSAT for a reason. It's not like they're just like, oh, let's pick this abstract intelligence test to give you. Yeah. No, <laughs> they want to see if you can read a bunch of new different rules, which is like reading a bunch of new different like controlling law or just, you know, what's the situation here for your client? Yeah. And they want to see if you can read everything and figure it all out and then come to a solution. Yeah. I think Kendra needs to keep grinding it out. I think she needs to look at, you know, Julian who has done half of all the games that exist and seems like he's going to keep going and do all the games that have ever existed. And, uh, you know, it more is better. Yeah. With the games, if you, I think there's about 360 of them now. So I like the idea that if you mastered one logic game a day for a year, you would have mastered all the logic games. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm saying <laughs> your competitors are. Yeah. 
All right. That's Kendra. Thanks, Kendra. I think you're the next one, Josh. Episode starting point. I'm taking the LSAT in February, but I'm really trying to find ways to keep my mind on the test while I work slash workout slash drive, etc. While I ramp up the studying like everyone else, I need to come. I need to avoid coming out of school with greater than $200,000 in debt. Yes, you really do. I've admittedly only listened to two episodes, the two most recent, and just wanted to know what episode would be a good starting point to get a good grasp of how you, quote, view the LSAT, as you've said a couple times. Josh. Hmm. I think I would probably search for the fundamentals. Yeah. Or just work back. So there's two ways here. You could just keep this simple and work backwards, right? You listen to the most recent episode. If you finish that and you're waiting for something else before the next one comes out, just go to the next one back. So if you're on 200, go to 199, then go to 198. And then when a new one comes out, listen to the new one and then go back to 197, 196, and so on, depending on how fast you're listening to them. Otherwise, go to thinkinglset.com and search. Use the search tool that I just did to find fundamentals yeah um i was just looking for that fundamentals there are at least 16 episodes looks like 176 yeah that's what i'm seeing too 176 we had more like uh selfies back then more of those <laughs> selfies <laughs> yeah when you email the show put a selfie so that we can have something to put on our website um Episode 176, Hello LSAT Fundamentals. You could start there, 176, and then go through the next uh, whatever. Um, but yeah, or just work backward from the current episodes. I think if you go too far back into the archives, you're just going to be hearing lots of old news about you know speculation on the transition to digital or speculation about how they're going to start offering the test multiple times. It just I don't know. I, I would... I would start with the most recent stuff and then, yeah, work backward. Mm-hmm. Or 176 and then go forward. I mean, that's still within the last year. That's all fine. Yeah. So thanks for that question, Josh. Josh has a PS. Have either of you heard at all about prior paralegal experience helping with A, admission into law school, or B, helping people once getting into law school? Well, I think, hmm, uh, yeah, it prior paralegal experience could help you get in if it helps, especially in your personal statement, it shows that you know what you're getting into and you do some good work there and show that. But notice what's happening. It's like you're doing some substantive work and you're making that clear in your personal statement. And then they're seeing, oh, this person knows what the law life is like and they're applying. That's not the same as just throwing it on your resume because a ton of applicants will have paralegal experience on their resume. So it's really how you present that experience. Will it help you once you get into law school? Yeah, I think it will. I mean, there's a lot of things you learn in law school about cases, precedent, (laughs) searching for cases that as a paralegal, you're going to get exposed to. And so when they start talking about in law school, you're kind of like, yeah, I've done some of that already. So I'm going to be better and faster at that than some newbies who are going to be saying, what the hell is LexisNexis and how does this work? Um, But I guess I don't want you to walk away with the idea that you just put it on your resume and now, oh, law schools are going to just love that. Um, 
in that sense, I actually think it hurts you because it's not unique. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I think you just, you should do it if you think it's the beginning of your legal career. Like you should address it. It's not a resume builder. I mean, it is a resume builder, but you shouldn't do it for that reason. Yes. Right. Do it to figure out whether you want to go to law school. I think that's the most valuable yeah. use of do a paralegal Do it because experience. you, yeah, like go paralegal in a firm so that you can see what it's like inside a big law firm. And if you love it and you want to be like those people walking around you who are attorneys, then press forward. If you're like, oh my God, they're here all the time. They're miserable as fuck. And they're grouchy at me. Well, it could be you're at a bad firm, but chances are that's not the kind of work you want to get into. Yeah, and chances you save are yourself two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> and three years and all the opportunities that you have to forego by going to law school. There's a lot of other options out there. So if you do that paralegal gig and you don't like it, that's a big sign that you probably shouldn't be going. Yeah. So yeah, this will help you decide whether law school is the thing for you. It will help you in law school. If it is the thing for you, you will learn stuff at that job that will help you in law school. Yeah. But doing it for admissions is not the reason to do it. You should do it because you're trying to build a career for yourself. Yeah. People think they know what they want. They're like, oh, I want to go to law school. And then what do I got to do to get there? I mean, that's normal. That's how we homo sapiens think. But I think I would, again, just, yeah, use it to decide actually what you want. Most people have no idea what lawyers do. Yeah. Half of the people in my classes are completely naive. Like, I mean, half the people in my classes are paralegals and they know exactly what they're getting themselves into. But half the people in my classes are just, you know, the, what they know about lawyers, they know from TV and books and stuff. Mm. And, you know, just this fantasy of like, well, I can't be a doctor, but I want to be a high paid professional. So, I, you know, doctor doesn't work. So, must be a lawyer for me. Yeah. <laughs> that's a real good chance to go get an internship, go be a paralegal. Get Yeah, get as serious about it as you can. Take another year before you decide whether you're going to go to law school or not. Work yeah. in it for a while. And if you love it and you like the firm that you're working at, heck, that could be great contacts for your summer associateship or something oh, like that. It's not out of the question that they will completely pay for you to go to law school. Yeah. If you kick ass as a paralegal, Hey, the truth is that paralegals do 99% of the work of the attorneys in lots of cases, right? There's, there's thousands of paralegals out there who do the work of a lawyer and then a lawyer signs off on it. Yeah. And if you get one of those kinds of paralegal jobs where you're actually practicing law mm-hmm. under the supervision of an attorney who signs all the things, if you get that job, I mean, of course, law firms are like, oh, shit, we're going to lose you? No, we don't want to lose you. <laughs> like, why don't you go to law school and work for us? Yep. In that case, so many good things can happen too, Ben, because you can like go to a lower ranked law school, get a scholarship. Yeah, you're not as worried about it, and you can do part time program, keep earning money, all kinds of stuff. School. Yeah, keep making. Like, go to a go to a lower ranked law school for free, get a stipend from the school, scholarship and stipend, <laughs> keep working at your firm. And just waltz right into a job at your firm as soon as you graduate. Cool. I mean, that happens. So <laughs> that's that's a big example of uh, paralegal helping people. Um, Here's one last thought. Yeah, you can use a paralegal job as a way to figure out whether to go to law school in a way in which someone is paying you to figure that out, 
as opposed to you paying a school to figure that out. You're not even going to figure it out in school. <laughs> That's true. School is so separated <laughs> from actual legal practice that you graduate and you have no idea what lawyers do. Yeah. Either way, though, you're, if you're paying at all, right, now you've just spent, you've paid at least in time um, and yeah. maybe in money uh, to not really figure out something that you could figure out in two or three weeks, maybe, at a paralegal job. I'm not saying you should quit after two or three weeks, but pretty quickly you could be like, whoa, this is painful. I don't want to do this. You're just, you just jump right in, right? You experience it hands on or you love it. Anyway, either way, I think you've learned something very valuable. I mean, if you learn that you hate it, you've probably learned that's the great lesson to learn. Yeah. <laughs> questions from the Facebook group. Oh, we have two questions from our Facebook group. Okay. That's the Thinking Deep. LSAT pod, uh, Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook, by the way. Yeah. D asks, how do people's thought processes change when their scores go up? Huh? I'm thinking of people scoring in the 140s versus 150s versus 160s. I think understanding the differences in thought processes may help people in those tiers increase their score and learn better. Hmm. I like this question. Okay. What do you like about it? Well, I think there's, I, I mean, I don't think that there's like, here's exactly what people in the 140s think and here's exactly what people in the 150s think and here's what people in the 160s think. Um, if it were that simple, it could just tell you, <laughs> but people in the one forties tend to think that it's about racing the clock and it's about skipping, skimming the surface and like, well, these are, you know, these, all three of these are, could be the answer, but this one probably is better than the, those ones. Sure. So racing the clock and tips and tricks, racing the clock, tips and tricks, and the complete flip side of that, people in the 160s realize if I'm going to make it from 164 to 167, I don't need to finish the sections in order to do that. What I need to do is just make one fewer mistake per section. I think the better you get at the test, the more you realize that the right answers make perfect sense and the wrong answers make no sense or they're just like wrong, conclusively wrong. Yeah. And the right answers are conclusively right and the wrong answers are conclusively wrong. The better students get, the more they realize that their problem is not speed, their problem is accuracy, and that they just need to clean up their mistakes if they're going to get better. Which is ironic. People in the 140s just straight don't understand what they're doing. Like they're, they're like not actually understanding the questions that they're reading. They think they're understanding, but they're not. Mm -hmm. People in the 160s are starting to know what it feels like to actually understand the questions. Like people in the 160s are confident that if you gave them unlimited time, they could get, you know, one through 15, they could get them right. And that they could probably get one through 20, you know, minus zero or minus one. Mm -hmm. For people in the 140s, that's just not true. So recap, 140s is going fast, looking for tips and tricks. 160s is going slow and not looking for tips and tricks, trying to understand why is that what it is. 
and 150s are somewhere in between. Yeah, 150s are starting to get there, right? One thing yeah. that people just do not understand, and I, I don't, I don't know why this is such a hard message to teach. You know, maybe I need to have more of like a formal lesson and like print something out and hand it to the students and put it in their face. Yeah. But to score in the 150s, you really only need to get like 15 points per section. That'll get you solidly into the 150s, won't it? Yeah. Let's see. That'd be 60 points. Um, oh, that's in the 150s. Yeah. Yeah. So, to get a score in the 150s, I mean, the easy way would be to like only do questions 1 through 15 and just get them all right. You still randomly guess on questions 16 through 25, and you get two of those right just by random chance. <laughs> so You know what? I think I just figured it out. Yeah. You're saying this just made me had this thought. Because I was thinking about people, how they respond when I say that, right? I'm like, okay, look, just do the first 15, or just do the first two passages. And they're like, just... But, you're saying not to do the last two passages? Right. It's the fact that loss aversion is more painful than a potential gain. Mm-hmm. Well, I've always wanted to give people of an abbreviated version of the test. I've always wanted to say, hey, we're going to do a section right now of logical reasoning and Here's hand it one out. 1 through 15. And it does <laughs> 1 through 15. Yeah. And, and just see, because I'm confident that the low, the people who are just stuck in the 140s, I think I could get them into the 150s if I only gave them 15 questions per section. Yeah. Like two logic games, two reading comprehension passages, 15 LR. Here you go. Hmm. And spend the whole 35 minutes. I beg people to do this. Like I literally beg them. You know, I I, <laughs> I can't because I I figure I like I realized that I cannot possibly stress it enough because no matter how much I stress it, it the message still won't get through. So I'm like actually begging people to focus on accuracy, randomly guess on the ones at the end of each section. Your score will be higher today and your score will be higher moving forward because you'll be better equipped to learn if you just slow the fuck down and focus on accuracy and just get them right. And people still just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. I, it's just it's a, it's a built-in right evolutionary tendency. They're looking at what they're losing, not what they're potentially gaining. Well, they're looking at both, but one feels much more painful than the other. I'll tell you what's painful. Attempting question number 24 on the logical reasoning when you're someone who scores in the 140s. That's painful. <laughs> or the 150s. No, you really shouldn't <laughs> be doing that. Well, the hard ones, the hardest ones live at the end of the section. I play a little game with myself now, Ben. Um, when ask button requests come in for the demon... I don't look at the test. I don't look at the section. I don't look at the number. I just start reading the argument hmm. and to when, see how hard you think to, it is. Yep. And, I get, I read yeah. the argument and I, and then mo- mostly it's just reading the argument, but then I, I'm all, you know, okay, I'll look at the question, look at the answers. And <laughs> based on my assessment of the difficulty, I get like, I, I predict what number it was in the section and I'm pretty good at it now. I'm pretty, and I, I am here to tell you, I really think like 24s and 25s on average are harder than 21 and 22. There's just more of the super nasty ones. They do put the super nasty ones at the end of the section. And yeah, yeah, you can show me number 25 where it's the easiest one on the section. Sure. <laughs> but I can sure. show you lots of 25s that are the hardest one on the section. Yeah. And they just, they get harder as you get deeper into the sections. And, 
people can score in the 170s without even finishing the sections. Remember when we had that girl that wrote into the show that had scored 174 without finishing any sections? She had guessed on one or two at the end of every section and still scored in the 170s? Yeah. (laughs) You tell that story to people, but they don't listen. It's like, wait a minute. Look at what this person's doing. They're doing fewer questions, but they're scoring dramatically higher than you are. They're doing less work than you are, but they're figuring them out and getting them right and then getting a high score. (laughs) Why don't you do that? People don't like that advice. They don't. Oh, you know, I just thought I had another thought too. So you have the loss aversion, right? Like, well, what if I don't get to those questions? I'm going to miss out on them. And then you have the situation where people are doing these questions and occasionally getting them right. Not necessarily because they understand, but because hey, you have a 20% chance, right? And maybe a 50-50 chance if you are smart enough to eliminate some of the horrible answers. And so then um, you get that like little dopamine kick you're like uh, but i got 21 and i got a 25 i got a 25 right so what if i hadn't done that question <laughs> again you're just focusing on the wrong things right the wrong rewards the wrong i get it that people don't want to be insulted like that they don't want to think that they can't do the hardest ones or they want to be proud of themselves that they can do the hardest ones yeah and, and i'm but I, and i'm willing to grant that yeah you can get some of the hardest ones right but they take more time and you're more likely to miss them. And you've made so many silly mistakes on so many easy questions. Like I just, I I review people's results and I'm like, how did you possibly pick E for that question? (laughs) That doesn't answer the question at all. It's not, it's like clearly not the answer, but you win a little too fast. So you just, you know, you were skimming the surface because you were like racing the clock. You, You just, you're not, you're not actually doing it. That's what I think of people in the one forties. You're like not actually doing the LSAT really. You're doing something different. You're doing like race the clock, make it look like I'm doing the work, not actually dig in deeply enough to get it right though. Just kind of spend some time on it and then kind of give up and throw up your hands and just be like, well, it must be B. Let me do the next one. Sure. So like one forties is going fast, looking for tips and tricks and not present. Whereas 160s, you're present, you're going slower, and you're really trying to understand. Yeah, you you basically have to be, you know, well, especially to score into the mid or high 160s. You know, you have to be like 85% or more accuracy at that point. And you have to be present for that. You have to understand what each sentence is saying and what you think of them. Even people in the 160s can improve on that, right? Yeah, a lot of oh, times sure. the way to get from 168 to 172 in a lot of cases is stop missing <laughs> that one or Wake two up. that you missed in the first 10 or the first 15. Like you just can't be missing those earlier, easier questions. If you're going to score in the mid 170s, you're going to run the table on one through 20. Or quote hard questions. And I say quote because they're only hard because you missed something in the passage. But if you read back and you thought about it for a half second, you'd be like, wait, what? Why'd you say that? And then it's easy. It's easy. It's the same as an easy question. Just did they pull the wool over your eyes? Another big thing that people in the 140s have in common is that they think they understand, but they, so they like don't ask questions. Oh, or worse, they defend their correct choice 
and their wrong reasoning. <laughs> right? They're like, yeah, yeah, well, I get what you're saying, but <laughs> right, I, that's I got true. it right. Like, let's move on. And it's like, um, okay, well, yeah, you did the, get it right, but for the wrong reason. Right. There are people in the 140s and 150s who either think that the LSAT doesn't make sense Oh yeah. yeah. Like it's well a subjective no but this, test. it's subjective. This one just no. If if you read it this way then it would mean this other thing and my answer's right. I mean I know I didn't get a point for it but I'm still right. Okay. <laughs> well, no you're uh, not. Under under the circumstances of the test I can see. <laughs> it's like no. <laughs> no. Sorry, you're wrong. That that doesn't mean what you thought it meant. Read yeah. it more carefully. It just doesn't say what you think it says. Yeah, or you yeah, you do get that. That is my least favorite student is the student who a student in the class will ask for an explanation. I'll give an explanation. It'll be clear. The student will be satisfied. And then the other student who got it right, who scores 151 on every test, but they got this one right. And so now they want to talk about how they got it right. But they got it right for the wrong reasons. But they have to talk about it. Yeah, that's that's a that's a that's a, a an archetype of the one fifties. Students who think they know better than <laughs> the people who are scoring in the one seventies. Not good. Not good. No, the, the, it's just it is funny that the higher scoring students tend to be more humble. They they have they have ego though. They have ego enough that they believe that they are capable of understanding it. And then I think that helps them to be more brave in admitting that they don't understand. Mm -hmm. Right? They're willing to push back and to ask again and again and again, yeah, I don't understand this. I don't understand that. But wait, but what about this? And they'll keep pushing back until it finally clicks for them. Even if they got it right. Even if they got it right. And the, right, yeah, they got it right kind of accidentally, but now they're going to like, actually engage with the thought process of how to understand how to understand why it really is right and why the wrong answers are wrong. Yeah. And they'll keep pushing back and they'll keep pushing back because they're cocky enough to believe that they are capable of understanding it. Mm -hmm. The people in the one forties and sometimes in the one fifties, they won't push back because they, there's so much that they're not understanding. Yeah. To add to that, sometimes people in the one seventies are, are getting the question right they may even be confident. They're like, look, I know it's D, but I was tempted by C and I'm trying to figure out whether C is like a second best answer or just dead wrong and I'm missing something. Like one thought or word or idea that would make this answer not even work. Because there are cases, especially like in strength and questions or something like that, where there might be another answer that could work if the correct answer were removed from the test. But there are a lot of cases where the correct answer, if it were removed, the quote second best answer would not work. Yeah, and people yet, people are like, well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I got it down to these two, and yeah, it's like, no, that answer doesn't work, even if you get rid of the best answer, despite the fact the LSAT tells you to pick the best answer. And they sometimes still won't. They still won't buy it. No. People stuck in the one fifties, lots of times, or low one sixties, even. They'll be like, no, no, if, 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 it's just that that other answer was better. You know, they're still like attached to, they refuse to believe that the second best answer is in fact not second best, that it's just out. Or, or sometimes they say it's better and they don't know why. Like maybe I agree with them. I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's better. Why is it better? 
And they're like, well, it's a, it's a, it, it fits more, cl- more closely. <laughs> right. It's like, whoa, okay, well, you haven't said anything new. Can you tell me the word or phrase that makes the one answer worse or the other answer better? Then you know you're getting somewhere. Anyway. Okay. That's a good question. I enjoyed Thank that you. question. That Thank was you. D. <laughs> Thank you, D. Okay, here from S. S asks, advice for a non-traditional student looking to apply. This is surprisingly hard to come by. Wait, it's too general. I don't know what to say. Don't go? <laughs> People love putting non-traditional as if that means something. I don't. Yeah, what does that mean? Because sometimes that means like a 50-year-old. Sometimes that means a 28-year-old because oh, they've been out of school for six years. It's that's like, ridiculous, a 26-year-old uh, non-traditional. non-traditional. No, you don't know the average age of law students, apparently, Yeah, um, which is high. So... I don't know. I don't know what to say to this. Uh, don't go is a pretty good start. <laughs> don't go unless. <laughs> I mean, I hate to break it to you, people in your 40s. Um, I'm a person in my 40s. Uh, when I encounter people in their 40s and 50s trying to go to law school, it. I don't know what's going on, but it, it just... It's it seems it seems doomed most of the time. Now yeah, you you could be you're an exception. Gonna fall into, yeah, you, you're going to fall into one of two categories, right? You're going to be the exception, and you're going to say, "Look, this is the career I've had. I'm just actually doing a little pivot here, and I I know I need a JD for this, and then I'm going to continue down this path." It's like, oh, you know what you're doing. I have no I cl- no idea where you're going with this, but you do, and you see the how A leads to C, but. A lot of these folks are just like, yeah, I'm just uh, going to try something new. It's like, whoa, not now, right? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah, no, I, I, I have complicated feelings about it because I really appreciate people who are striving and you know want to make the best of their life. And if they've been, this has been nagging at them for a decade and now they finally think the time is right in their life to go to law school, blah, blah, blah. It is true that you theoretically could practice law into your 80s and 90s and you know some people do that and it's not too late it's not like you can't go to law school for 3 years and take the bar and get a job and no I mean a decade from now you could be 50 something and you could be practicing law and you could totally practice law for 30 years and be you know have be very glad you did it It's just that when I look at the individual cases they, mm. you know what I don't see, Ben? I don't see people come into my class and uh, kill the LSAT at age 50. This is true. It's extremely rare. People think that like people, th- and it's not, I don't think it's because they're older. I don't, I don't know. I'd like to think that my cognitive capacity is still hanging in there fairly strong at age 44 and, I don't, I don't, I'm not thinking, I I don't think like kids have some advantage over, you know, middle-aged people on the LSAT. I do, do don't, I definitely don't think that's true. I don't think college teaches you shit that's helpful for the LSAT anyway. (laughs) I mean, just reading books and having a big vocabulary is what's good for the LSAT. So I'm wondering, I just think it's a selection bias thing, right? I think that if you're, if you're not killing it, wherever you are, you're more likely to be searching for something else. Mm -hmm. And if you're not killing it there, well, what's to make us think that you're likely to come 
over to a different domain and start killing it here. It's possible. I mean, maybe you you went down the wrong path, and really the path for you is logical reasoning and deductive, you know, analysis. But instead, it's probably just struggling. Yeah, and it, and it's the thing is a <laughs> <Sorry>. lot. <laughs> no, it's depressing, dude. It's depressing. These cases, in a lot of cases, in a lot of situations, these cases are depressing. It what people what they don't realize is that like they were struggling in whatever career they were in but law is um brutally competitive the lsat's brutally competitive law school's brutally competitive legal practice it's crazy <laughs> like it wants um killers it wants people who are going to win that's yeah. the people who are going to be the most successful and happiest practicing law is people who like they're just used to winning things that's what the best lawyers are. This reminds me of Jeff Bezos dropping out of his physics program. Did you hear about this? Mm-mm. So apparently, I just read this the other day, he um, was pursuing physics, I think, some some high-level you know, science thing. And he was working on a problem for a long time. And I guess he was in the top like 10 or 12 students of his group, right? So it's not like he was doing poorly. He, in fact, most people would be like, look, you're doing well. But he said he looked at the three students like who are at the top of his class and he's like, I just don't have their cognitive abilities. Yeah. And if I want to contribute to this discipline, I have to be in their seats and I'm not. And so he left. And it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes there's value in recognizing what you're good at and what you're not good at and go pursue what you're going to be good at. I've had a few older students do well. You're think you're talking about computer science made me remember that like I have had a few transition out of tech jobs into law hmm. where they were like actual programmers and they decided they wanted to be lawyers. That I can get behind, but the reason why I can get behind it is because those people tend to score really high on the LSAT. Yeah, that's the same with physics and math majors. This test is really not about English. People who have English majors love to talk about how, like, I've been reading my whole undergrad career. Wow. I don't understand why I can't do well in this test. It's like, no, this test is actually like a math test. <laughs> well, it's a test of logic from, is what it is. It's yeah. not like a, a huge vocabulary helps a lot. And being able to read um, with comprehension helps a lot. But you also have to understand how logic works. And yeah, well, the people who do the best on the LSAT are computer science majors. So I'm not sure that people who study English actually no, exactly not. are comprehend. That's the Dude, challenge. A thousand like, percent not. Yeah. I think schools are training people not to understand things these days. Like I think they give them way too big of reading assignments where it's not even possible that they could read it all and actually understand it. Yeah, and so it's like, it's oh, well, like this semester we're reading these nine dense books, but I'm not going to actually expect you to understand any of them because I'm not going to like give you real exams. I'm going to have you write a paper about it. Yeah, and you just ramble on for forty pages about the books that you halfway read. <laughs> That's not the LSAT. The LSAT's like I'm going to give you three sentences, and then you're going to have to really understand what they say and how they connect. Well, you know, that's interesting you say that because now that it takes me back to high school for some reason. And in high school, I never read any of the books. 
<laughs> that we were asked to read. I always read the cliff notes. I really, well, you like I just can't read. You like couldn't yeah. read, right? You have yeah, like had dyslexia or whatever. Yeah. But <laughs> I also hate reading. And so then I was like, okay. Um, like now, you know, all the books I talk about, it's not like I don't like the content. I listen to audiobooks like constantly and love what I learn. But reading itself is just kind of a pain in the ass. And so I was just thinking about it. I'm like, I graduated with a 3.5. I did pretty well. I was in Palo Alto. So it's not like these are right. not competitive schools. It's very competitive. But you that's because the way you get tested on what you comprehended there are other ways to show that quote comprehension that have nothing to do with actually reading. And just yesterday I had a conversation with a teacher in Fairfax County public schools, which by the way is a model school district or County for several um, counties throughout the nation. I guess when we do things here, people look and say, Oh, well they're doing it that way. So we're going to start doing it that way. And she was saying, Oh, it's so great. Uh, kids these days, now when we do reading comprehension tests, they can look back at the text before I guess they couldn't look back. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's good. And she's like, sometimes they look back two or three times and reread the whole passage two or three times. And I'm like, wait, hold up. I don't think that's a good thing. Like To me, that suggests that they didn't understand it the first time they read it. And she's like, I know, that's why we let them read it back. It's like real life. And I'm like, no, no, no. (laughs) What I'm saying is, That's great. I agree. I think they should be allowed to look back at the text, but I don't think that that is the solution. You shouldn't encourage them to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an indication of a problem that happened as they started reading the text. Did you read that sentence and understand it? Or did you read it and were thinking about something else and just kept going? And then you got to the end and you go to the questions and you're like, I don't know the answers. So you go read the full passage again. And I guess apparently a third time. It's... And if other counties are looking to our county and this is now a new thing and this is the solution to reread the passage, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe people are excited about things, right? Things are exciting in theory, but are they actually working? Uh, And what are the consequences? Anyways, tangent, but. No, yeah, I, let's wrap up our advice for (laughs) non-traditional students. (laughs) But I mean, I, 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 like real talk, don't walk away from a lucrative career. That's step one. <laughs> like your career might not be perfect, but blowing it all up and starting over with law school, being shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of 20 somethings trying to start over in a brand new career, it's going to be really hard and it could be really, really painful. And if you're walking away from um, a something that like has been, you know, able to pay the bills, I would be looking for maybe other areas tangentially related to what you're already doing. What are, what other jobs could you get right now? (laughs) If you're looking for a change of pace, what other jobs could you get right now besides lawyer? I would be looking for those first. And then the other thing I have to say for, I I, I don't think non-traditional students, as far as applications or whatever, Hey, you have to have kick-ass grades and kick-ass LSAT. One thing that non-traditional students tend to have in common is bad undergraduate grades. Yeah, and they hope that it's been so long that now they won't give as much weight but, to that. But that's not true because the index formula doesn't care. It doesn't like, care. They are going to, and the ABA doesn't care. The 509 reports don't care. U.S. News and World Report doesn't care. So the law schools don't care. 
they'll you know they'll give lip service to like well of course you've been out of school for so long well you know we'll look at your LSAT more heavily well okay fine get a great LSAT score then yeah but it's like when I see non-traditional students who they have bad undergraduate grades well we already basically say if you have bad undergraduate grades don't go to law school yeah <laughs> you know if you're like a two point something my I am going to have a 50% or more chance that you shouldn't go to law school. Again, I know I had a 2.5 and I shouldn't have been in law school. I don't have the work ethic. I'm not interested. I don't want to do that stuff. So, so, you know, it's not that much different, like a 20 something with a 2.5 or a 45 year old with a 2.5, you're in the same boat. You have bad grades. Yeah. You're going to need a great LSAT score in order to be a compelling candidate. Are you going to get a great LSAT score? It's, I think a lot of these non-traditional students, like they want to blame the fact that they're non-traditional, right? They think like, well, I need special advice because I'm not like all the other candidates. But it's like, yeah, okay, but you have a bad LSAT score and bad GPA. Yep. So <laughs> the fact that you're non-traditional is irrelevant. You're just not a good candidate for law school based on your grades and based on your GPA, uh, based on your LSAT. Yeah. So, you know, like maybe did, that's a good test. Just say, "Hey, I don't care whether you're traditional or non-traditional. Do you have good? G, do you have a high GPA and, or at least a decent GPA? And do you have a good LSAT score? And if then you it, don't. So then, yeah, it, like right, one or the other. Like you have to have excellent grades or an excellent LSAT score. Ideally, both. Yeah. But if you don't have the grades, then you have to get the kick-ass LSAT score. And even if you do get the grades. Well then good. Let's get a kick kick ass LSAT score and then let's really knock their socks off. Yeah. So <laughs> either way, it's like kill the LSAT. Traditional student, kill the LSAT. Non-traditional student, mm-hmm, kill the LSAT. But then if Next. you if you, Yeah, because if you can't do that, then you don't if you can't do that, then I don't no man no matter of um advice for non-traditional students is gonna make a difference. Yeah. And if you do have the kick-ass LSAT score, then you don't need advice for non-traditional students because you've got the numbers. Boom. I don't know. I don't mean to shit on all non-traditional students. I just know that the outcomes on average, are, they're not what I wish they were. Yeah. And I think maybe it's because of selection bias, because of people, you know, when you get good undergraduate grades, it's more likely that you're going to go to law school right away or you're going to get into some other successful career right away. Yeah. If, and it's harder to leave. If you were you're like me... Well. Mm-hmm. and you were a space cadet when you were in college, then yeah, you don't go straight to grad school. You don't go straight into a really successful career. You meander around for a decade doing a bunch of different shit like I did. And then maybe you end up going back, but <laughs> I don't know. Just like the real, it's, it's, it's uncommon, I guess, that I see yeah. a non-traditional student that I'm really excited about. The ones that I'm excited about are the ones that are going to kick ass on the LSAT. So, you know, there's lots of times when I, I'll see I'll see a student who comes in, they're a little bit older, but they score 155 on their first LSAT. And then I'm like, yeah. okay, here we go. We can work with that. Yeah. Get you up to 170 and it's just not going to matter that you're non-traditional. Yeah. Or even high 160s. It's fine. But if you're non-traditional and you're starting with a, 135 and you're really struggling and you have bad undergraduate grades to go with it. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, Oh, I also have to work full time to support my family. 
I'm just trying to get over the hump on this LSAT. And it's like, no, 135 is not just trying to get over the hump. That's like trying to get started, like trying to get the ball rolling. <laughs> you yeah. have to push the ball a long way up the hill <laughs> before you get over the hump. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. All right. Should we move on to this next yeah. one? Last one? Yes. Yeah, so the next one says, is this cycle a counter cycle? I love that you all give advice on law school admissions and stress the importance of applying early. What are your thoughts on the possibility that this cycle is a counter cycle? <laughs> a what? That's what okay. I thought when I read that the first time. Yeah. I'm reading it for the first time right Never now. Never heard of I'm that. saying, yeah. what? Okay. <laughs> so M continues. You can find more on this on Reddit, but essentially the thought is, colon, law schools have realized people try to apply early to get in with worse numbers. So they're waiting longer to send out any decisions and sure enough are getting more qualified candidates in later months. Waiting on waiting lists for months is crushing some people, but the law schools are well within their rights to do this, to get exactly the class they want. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I love the podcast. Well, I'm not surprised if they don't have the people that they want and they think statistically they should have more applicants in a certain range, then they're going to wait for them. Applying early is good if you have the numbers. I don't think we're ever saying apply early to compensate for poor numbers. We're saying get good numbers and apply early. And then you're beating those people who are applying late. Yeah, the best applicants still do apply at the beginning of the cycle. I'm sorry, but the, the people who are more prepared tend to apply earlier in the beginning of the cycle. Yes, it's true that there are outliers who will apply late, but this isn't any kind of like a difference. Like a, this whole thing with a counter cycle, that's like some shit that people are just making up on Reddit. Sure, like this has been happening all along. The schools, if they don't get the people they want, they wait. This is some, That's this why is you have a waiting list. People who got waitlisted and now they're like making up excuses for why they got waitlisted. Uh, I was waitlisted, but that's because oh, this is a counter cycle. Counter cycle. I'm clearly a great applicant. It's just that law schools are behaving differently this cycle than they have in any other previous cycle. No, every cycle is the same. I mean, sure, there's like subtle, small differences, but the people who applied early, when they're really good candidates, I mean, they have lots of offers already. The, the best schools do tend to wait, right? Like Harvard is not giving out a lot of decisions in October. Because they can. Yeah, because they can wait. They, don't, they know that they're going to get all the best applicants anyway, so they can do whatever they want. But applying early is still good. Yes. Because <laughs> they're going to still accept some people yes. and they know that you have your shit together. Yes, and you're gonna, there are going to be some top schools, maybe not Harvard, Stanford, Yale, but there's going to be other top schools dipping in there trying to poach the early applying people yeah. right like hey if we give this person an offer right now they might accept it before they even hear back from harvard like yeah. they won't even know if they're going to get an interview from harvard but we're in here giving them a very attractive offer right now and asking them for a deposit maybe they'll pay it and once they've paid it maybe they'll be more inclined regardless of whether it's rational to come to our school this whole thing of people getting crushed while they're on the wait lists <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Now that you mention it, well, it's isn't it annoying? It's annoying. Let's be honest. It's annoying. We have to deal with it every single fucking cycle. These people they apply early and then they just it's like they're personally devastated if they don't hear back within a month, or they're personally devastated when they get put on a wait list. It's <laughs> it's just a game. It's just a negotiation. It's not. It doesn't mean anything. They don't, it means nothing about your quality as a candidate. Some schools, some years 
will literally put everyone they admit on the wait list first. Didn't Georgetown do that not too long ago, five years ago uh, or something like I that? I don't remember, but yeah, I could see it's a, it's a yield protection yes, strategy, right? Yeah. Are They're, you serious about this school or not? Yes. they Sure. They might blanket deny the people who aren't even close, right? These people are just like, your numbers are not even in the conversation, so goodbye. They could dismiss people because of weird stuff that they put in their personal statement or resume or letters of recommendation. <laughs> Someone, one of your recommenders, like totally shits on you. They could dim- dismiss you for that. But then they could just waitlist everyone else. It doesn't cost yeah. them anything to waitlist you. And then, and they know that you're getting nervous. But boy, the people who play it, who play the game the right way, shouldn't even be getting nervous. If you sent in. 20 applications in September, you'd have 10 offers right now. And then the fact that you were on the wait list on at a handful of schools, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> like scoreboard, like admit me whenever you admit me, I'm going to ask you for scholarship money. And if you don't admit me, then who cares? <laughs> I've got these 10 offers in hand already. Yeah. I don't know. I, this people should probably stay off of the forums. I don't, I don't think that there's, there's a lot of at best waste of time. This whole, like, what does this do for you? If, if I were to tell you, yes, this is a counter cycle. What are you going to do? Apply late. Oh, maybe I will apply after all. <laughs> it's February. Oh, yeah, it's a counter cycle. Maybe I should apply this year. Maybe that actually, do you think that's what this is? It's like fishing for should hmm. like permission to apply late. I don't know. That's possible. People do that. I think people like nuance and insight. <laughs> so, but again, it doesn't matter. Like you still have to like, this is stats debating. Basically it is go read some books, go, go see a movie, you know, go work on your LSAT score. Maybe you're applying with too low of a score. Yeah. Yeah. All of this energy could be put into making yourself a better applicant speculating about what the schools are doing uh, is not uh, just is not moving the needle. People love doing it, but it's not doing anything. We love you though. We do love you. Thank you for writing. We appreciate all the questions. Yeah. All right. Last one. Yeah. What is this? I don't know. It says newest UC Hastings student. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I've been listening to your podcast for the past year and a half and I love it with the help of the demon I made a 12-point leap on my LSAT. I applied to all the UCs and received the best scholarship offer from none other than UC Hastings. (laughs) They offered me a full tuition scholarship with a $20,000 housing stipend each year. Oh, my gosh. That's a decent amount of cash. one of the best offers we've ever heard. This non-conditional scholarship was offered to me because I went to an historically black college or university. In case any listeners are interested, it's called the California Scholars Program. Wow, and it's non-traditional, not non-traditional, non-conditional. That's nice. Yeah, there are, you know, every school, I think, has some of these kinds of scholarships out there where they really like back up the Brinks truck for certain people. So just to clarify here for our listeners who are just joining us, non-conditional means that this applicant, Lewis, right? Lois. Well, not Lois. Lois? Oh, okay. Won't lose it. Yeah. So Lois cannot get this scholarship taken away from her. That's awesome. I mean, 
I imagine there are some stipulations. Like she has to remain in good academic standing. Yeah. She can't fail every exam, but it's hard to fail at Hastings anyway. Trust me. If anyone was going to fail, I would have failed. Um, so if she shows up, does the work, you know, studies for her exams, she's going to be able to get a JD from Hastings for free plus $20,000 housing stipend. Keep in mind that Lois is still spending money. She's going to have to pay for her living while she's in law school, not earning money. And she's going to have to. Books are fucking expensive if you buy the books. Yeah. It's weird. It's like. This is amazing. This is one of the best offers we've heard, but it's still a cost. So know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Like, are you sure you want to take this offer, Lois? <laughs> you, could, <laughs> you could just not go to law school. I mean, this is a good offer. As far as law school goes, this is a good offer. But yeah. are you sure you want this? Nah. Anyway, she says, I've decided to take their offer. Parentheses. We don't pay for law school around here. Exclamation point. Yeah, love that. When I get to UC Hastings, I will be sure to show the dean your podcast. Oh, great. Yeah, good. Let's not do that. Maybe that'll get him to tighten up on his emails, LOL. By the way, the new building is gorgeous. Come check it out. (sighs) Boy. (laughs) At least you're not paying for that building. (laughs) Fuck. Yeah, thank God, Lois, you're not paying for it. The other people at your school or whoever is funding the scholarship, but it, it, which very could, very likely is just the other students. Somebody's paying for it. Um, All the donations. Yeah, it ain't me. I'm not getting any in. alumni donations. Um, yeah. Lovely new building. Boy, I wonder if they would let me in there. I don't, I don't know. I'd have to be Lois's guest <laughs> to come for a campus visit. <laughs> You should email him. You should respond to one of his emails. Say, I'd love to see the new building, how it's coming, and talk about it on my show. I got an invitation the other day to an event they're doing in Napa. It's like basically at some winery, and it's a it's a wine. It's, you have to buy tickets to this exclusive event. Oh, and it's with David Fagman, and it's like oh wine tasting and a tour of some winery or whatever. How much is it? How much are the tickets? Forty dollars. Plus, I'm sure there's some expectation that you're going to be like buying bottles of wine. Normally, that's how wine tasting goes. Yeah. Um, just wanted to say thank you both so much. I really appreciated the hilarious podcast, brutally honest personal statement tips, and the ingenious LSAT demon. I recommend you guys to anyone who asks how I did it. I wish you both the best. Sincerely, Lois. Um. Lois got her money's worth on the LSAT demon because she improved her score by 12 points and she got not only full tuition to Hastings, but also a $20,000 a year check to help her with her rent. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really awesome. LSATdemon.com. Do the seven-day free trial. Hit the ask button if there's anything you're not sure about. But um, basically all you need to do is just do the demon. Right. Don't don't get mistakenly thinking that you can just sign up for the demon. <laughs> you got to go do the work. I mean, people do that too, right? Like, yeah, all I got to do is get the gym membership. I'll get the six pack <laughs> in no time. <laughs> just start paying. Here's my credit card. Yeah. Uh, no, you need to actually use it. But I do think it could be civilized and fun. I think with the demon, if if they just do an hour a day in the demon, I mean, you're going to improve. Well, I hear a lot of people, especially with logical reasoning, who say they start at night, 
they just start doing some LR questions. And you know, you, you do a question and it gives you the explanation and you can watch it or read it and figure it out and then it pops up another one and the demon will just keep humming along until yeah. you close your browser and they'll be like, I started at 7.30 and at 10 o'clock I was like, what the heck? That's I awesome. I to go to bed. Well, and it's like... It's, they said it's addicting, you know, you, you sometimes you just, whatever dopamine kick they're getting from it. I don't know. It's like the green, the, the green, correct. Like <laughs> I'm a, I'm a gamer, man. I've been playing yeah. recently, um, this board game. My friend introduced me to this board game called seven wonders duel. It's a two player game, but I, it's like hard to get people to like sit down and play board games. So I, I realized that it has an app. So I got it for my phone. Yeah, and I addictively play this shit on my phone just against the AI. I'll just want to mm. play. I just like, oh, I'll do a quick game. It takes me like four minutes to play a quick game, and I just want to see if I can win. You know, mm-hmm. it's addictive. And yeah, if you get addicted to the demon in that same way, I mean, LR questions, you you should be able to get them right. I mean, you know, like, but if you get them right, the demon is going to automatically bump the difficulty up. So how good are you at this? And I don't know. People spend so much time like endlessly scrolling Instagram, endlessly scrolling Twitter, endlessly scrolling Facebook. And instead of that first, you know, (laughs) when you open up, instead of opening Twitter, open up the LSAT demon. Yep. And just do one question. And sure, if you fall down the rabbit hole and you send up spending an hour, that's great. All you'd have to do is do that every day. Yeah. You'd you'd be there for sure. So, okay, should we uh, wrap it? Yeah, up Yeah, let's there? wrap it up. Join the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook. Speaking of scrolling, <laughs> or follow us at Thinking LSAT on Instagram and Twitter. You can visit strategyprep.com for classes, my classes in DC, Fox LSAT.com for Nathan's classes in LA and San Francisco. We also have uh, one-on-one options. Our joint project is lsatdemon.com, which you can study anywhere on your phone, uh, take all the available tests, etc. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, and our very own thinkinglsat.com. That's also where you can get an LSAT Demon shirt if you're so inclined. Leave us a review on iTunes. Write a quick note if you're so inclined as well. That's very helpful. That was episode 232 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.